Toward the end of last year, Marvel and Netflix teamed up for yet another superhero series. This time it was Luke Cage telling the story of the man with superhuman strength and impenetrable skin. As is the case with many TV shows, Luke Cage saw a myriad of teams working on the series. Throughout the first season, which consisted of 13 episodes, Luke Cage's episodes had a total of 12 directors. Only Paul McGuigan directed two episodes, the first two in the season. On the flip side, the third to last episode, episode number 11, was directed by George Tillman Jr. While many directors start with TV and switch to film, George went the other direction as he directed films before his most recent TV work. George's first feature-length film was 1995's Scene for the Soul, which saw an actor named George Brashear play one of the leading roles. Then, two years later, George Brashear would return and play a smaller role in a larger of George Tillman Jr.'s films, Soul Food. Five years after that, George Tillman Jr. would direct his biggest film yet, and probably one of the films that he's still known for today. Men of Honor tells the story of Carl Brashear, who, to my knowledge, is not related to the actor George Brashear, despite sharing an uncommon surname. That, it would seem, is just a coincidence. But what of the story itself? How much of the film Men of Honor is true? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. If you're new to the show, this is where we take a moment before we jump into the history behind the movie and play two truths and a lie. Here's how it works. I'll share three things. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then by process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie, but we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here they are. Number one. Carl Brashear was the first African-American diver in the U.S. Navy. Number two, Carl Brashear was the first African-American deep-sea diver in the U.S. Navy to earn master diver while on active duty. Number three, Carl Brashear was the first amputee diver in the U.S. Navy. Did you know that you can sponsor your own episode of Based on a True Story? You can do that over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. When you become an official producer of the show, I'll make an episode based on the movie of your choice, provided it falls within the Based on a True Story theme for the show, of course. Or you can become an executive producer and get multiple recurring sponsored episodes. There's a limited number of those available, though. So to find out more or to support the show today, hop on over to patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Men of Honor. The movie begins with Robert De Niro's character, U.S. Navy Master Chief Leslie William Sunday. Although we don't know his name is Leslie until much later, most people just call him Master Chief Billy Sunday. Anyway, in the film, we see a badly beaten Billy as he's being held by military police for going AWOL. And right away, 
were hit with the first major inaccuracy in the film. Master Chief Billy Sunday never went AWOL because Master Chief Billy Sunday never existed. Robert De Niro's character in the film is a composite character that the filmmakers used to characterize a number of U.S. Navy trainers and servicemen who worked with Carl Brashear. Speaking of Carl, after this first scene in the movie with Robert De Niro, we're whisked back 25 years earlier to meet a very young Carl Brashear who's played by the young Chris Warren Jr. This younger version of Carl watches his dad, Mac, who's played by Carl Lumbly, plow on their farm. In a very sincere moment after realizing he's plowing fields of another man and still struggling to put food on the table for his family, Mac gives the young child a single piece of advice. Don't grow up to be like me. While we don't know if this specific scene ever took place, the overall gist of this early childhood that the scene in the film is trying to imply is fairly accurate. The real Carl Brashear was born on January 19th 1931, as the sixth child to McDonald, or Mac, and Gonzella Brashear. Four years later, Mac and Gonzella took their family to the small town of Sonora, Kentucky. For a bit of context, Sonora is about 55 miles, or about 88 kilometers, to the south of Louisville, Kentucky. Today, Sonora has little over 400 people living there, so a very small town. It was here that Max supported his family by working as a sharecropper. As the movie implies, sharecropping is where landowners allow a family to live on their land in exchange for their tending the land. In this case, the Brashear family and their eight children, they had two more after Carl, worked on a farm in Kentucky in exchange for their share of crops. We don't know the exact share that they got, but it's probably safe to say it was just enough to live on and not much more. It wasn't an easy childhood. Carl dropped out of school after 7th grade and went to work, helping his father in the fields. Back in the movie, we quickly jump forward to an older Carl Brashear as he goes off to join the U.S. Navy. Oh, and this older version of Carl is played by Cuba Gooding Jr., while Men of Honor doesn't really give a timeline for when this happens, we know from documentation that Carl enlisted in the Navy on February 25th, 1948. That was exactly one month and six days after Carl's 17th birthday. Oh, and the movie doesn't mention this at all, but Carl actually tried to join the U.S. Army first. The Army recruiter was brashly racist, and really to the point of being abusive, so much so that Carl decided not to join the army, and he went to the Navy recruiter instead. Apparently, that recruiter wasn't as bad because Carl ended up joining the Navy. While the recruiter may not have been as bad, after joining, according to the film, Carl is still subjected to racism. It starts when he's serving as a cook because, as one actor in the movie says, that's one of three things a black man can do in the Navy. It's either cook, officer's valet, or get the f*** out. That's another scene that's made up for the film. But again, unfortunately, the gist is true. That gist being, of course, that there was an extreme amount of racism in the U.S. Navy in 1948. In fact, it was just 23 days before Carl enlisted in the Navy that President Harry Truman instructed the Secretary of Defense to take the steps necessary to, quote, 
have the remaining instances of discrimination in the armed services eliminated as rapidly as possible, end quote. Of course, that didn't happen in 23 days. Technically, the armed forces were still segregated until July 26, 1948, when Truman issued executive orders 9,980 and 9,981. The former of these tearing down segregation in the workplace and the latter of these tearing down segregation in the U.S. armed forces. Of course, even with the executive orders, racism didn't go away overnight. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. In the movie, there's a few scenes that lead Carl away from the mess hall and onto the path of a diver. The first happens when we see Carl disobey a segregated swimming time and dives into the water with a bunch of white sailors. He then goes on to outswim them all, impressing the onlooking officers. Shortly after this, there's another scene where Carl gets the idea for becoming a diver. This happens when he sees Robert De Niro's character go on a dive to rescue a wounded pilot and then his own colleague when there's an accident with the second diver. Well, the first scene certainly could have happened. As best as we can tell, it was fictionalized for the film. Of course, it's not like every swimming break was documented. As for the second scene, we already know Robert De Niro's character was fictional, so there's probably not much surprise to say that this one was made up too. However, both of these scenes together do a pretty good job of telling a fairly accurate tale of what happened to Carl. First, there was the inherent racism at every turn. That's something we can't really pinpoint to a single event like the swimming scene we see in the film, but it's also something we can't avoid because it's a huge part of the story. According to the real Carl Bashir, quote, Growing up on a farm in Kentucky, I always dreamed of doing something challenging. When I saw the divers for the first time, I knew it was just what I wanted, end quote. Just wanting to be a diver wasn't enough. Again, there was the racism to deal with. 
Carl started to make requests that he could go to diving school, but was constantly denied. He would later recall that one Navy personnel officer explained, the Navy doesn't have any, quote, colored divers, end quote. Carl's response, the Navy's about ready to have one. Five years after joining the Navy, Carl was accepted into diving school. That was in 1953. In the movie, when Carl goes to diving school, he runs into Master Chief Billy Sunday again. As it turns out, the Master Chief is a teacher at the diving school now. There's a brief moment where Robert De Niro's version of Billy Sunday thinks Carl is there to be a cook. Even though Billy Sunday wasn't a real person, this scene did happen. When Carl reported to the diving school in Bayonne, New Jersey, the training officer on duty at the time just assumed Carl was there to be a cook. After an uphill battle to even be accepted to the diving school, something like this might seem small. But the mere fact that we know about this little tidbit shows how much it meant to Carl, who clearly remembered this event enough to recount it years later. That goes to show that racism, no matter how small or mundane we might think it is at the time, has a negative and long-term impact on everyone it affects. Fortunately, there is a common theme among many of the men and women who were brave enough to fight through the racial barriers in the U.S., and like them, Carl wasn't easily dissuaded. Back in the movie, once Carl is in diving school, there's two main characters who come to the forefront. One of them is Snow Hill, who's played by Michael Rappaport. The other is a villainous character named Dylan Rourke, who's played by Holt McCallany. Like Master Chief Billy Sunday, both Snow Hill and Rourke are fictional characters. The filmmakers created these guys to characterize the two sides of the racial battles the real Carl Bashir had to face. Because of this, the scenes that we see in the film with Rourke antagonizing or berating Carl are made up. So are the scenes where we see Snow Hill befriending him. Although the closest friend one could probably say that Carl had was a man named Rutherford. Despite not being real people or actual situations, a lot of these events that we see are amalgamations of people and things that did happen. For example, hate notes were often left on Carl's bunk. Other times, the sailors would make it clear they didn't want Carl around. Because of President Truman's executive order, they couldn't outright kick Carl out. But that didn't stop them from trying to do all that they could to get Carl to break and quit himself. Carl recalled many of those events years later, and in fact, the real Carl Brashear was a technical advisor on the movie Men of Honor, so he was there to help steer the filmmakers so that we, the viewers, could get a sense for the hatred that he faced. Of course, as viewers were still watching a movie, the real thing had to have been much worse. And for Carl, as if the military training wasn't hard enough, with all those added pressures to it, it had to have been horrible. To Carl's credit, he stuck with it. Back in the movie, Carl recognizes he has to focus on more than just the act of diving. So he goes to the library in an attempt to find a tutor. He does, and in the movie, it's Ingenue Ellis' character, Joe. Like many of the other scenes that we've looked at so far, the details of the story here were also made up for the film, but they were made up so that we could get the spirit of the story across. 
The true story is that Carl Brashear was never married to anyone named Joe. Throughout his life, Carl had three wives. The first, which is probably who Joe was based on in the movie the most, was Junetta Wilcoxon. However, the timeline in the movie is a bit off. Carl and Junetta were married in 1952, the year before Carl joined diving school. They stayed together for 26 years, divorcing in 1978. Although the movie's indication of Joe being pregnant is closer to the real timeline. Carl and Junetta had Shizenta in 1955, their first child. As a little side note, Carl would then have three more children, Dwayne, Philip, and Patrick, as well as two more wives, Hattie Elam from 1980 to 1983 and Jeanette Brundage from 1985 to 1987. So while the movie may not have been entirely accurate depicting Carl's personal life, it's fairly accurate by implying the crazy amount of hard work Carl had to put in to pass the tests required to get through diving school. And sadly, that hard work had a negative effect on his family at home because Carl spent so much time at work. If you remember, Carl quit school in the seventh grade, so he didn't have the benefit of a great education. Well, this had to have hindered him, but even this couldn't stop him. In the movie, there's a moment where Robert De Niro's version of Master Chief Sunday sees the homemade radio Carl's father gave him, along with a photo of his dad. When he asks about it, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s version of Carl implies that his dad has been a major source of inspiration for him. That is very true. Well, again, the gist is very true. The real Carl Bashir would later recall that despite the difficulties, the racism, and the massive uphill battles he had to climb, his father's advice helped him get through the tough times. According to Carl, his father's words would be something like, You get back in there, Carl, and you fight. You do your best. So that's what he did. If there's ever something that's easier said than done, that's a great example. In the movie, all of this hard work pays off when Carl manages to overcome yet another attempt by the racist sailors around him trying to kick him out when they rip up the bag during his final test. After 9 hours and 31 minutes in frigid conditions underwater, Carl manages to successfully pass the test. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find anything that verified the time it took Carl being 9 hours and 31 minutes to finish this test. But then again, Carl Bashir himself was a technical advisor on the film, so it wouldn't surprise me if that little bit is true. While the bag incident was changed, what we do know is that Carl's so-called teammates simply didn't send some of the tools that he needed. In a speech to students at Pennsylvania State University, Carl explained, quote, They really messed with me at diving school. When I was working under 16 feet of water at the training school in Bayonne, they did things like not sending down the welding rods or igniter I needed. I got them later than everyone else. They wanted to see if they could break me down. End quote. But they couldn't. There were a total of 17 divers who were in his graduating class in October of 1954. Out of those graduates, Carl's grades ranked him 16th. Back in the film, after his graduation, were shifted back to the scene that we saw in the beginning, 
a battered and bruised Robert De Niro in his he's in cuffs and he sees Carl on TV. On the screen, Carl's getting ready to die for a nuclear bomb that was on board a plane that crashed into the ocean. That bit of the storyline with the crashed airplane is true. It happened a little over 11 years after Carl graduated from diving school. On January 17, 1966, as the residents of the small village of Palomares in the southernmost province of Spain were going about their morning routines, a gut-wrenching sound made them look to the skies. When they did, all they could see was fire and smoke. One unidentified person from Palomares was later quoted as saying, I looked up and saw this huge ball of fire falling from the sky. Just moments before, two massive airplanes collided in midair. One was a KC-135 Stratotanker from the U.S. Air Force, and the other was the plane that the KC-135 was trying to refuel in midair, a B-52 bomber. To give you a sense of scale here, the KC-135 is made from a modified Boeing 707. It's about 136 feet long and about 131 foot wingspan. That's about 41.4 meters long and about a 40 meter wingspan. That's big, but the plane it collided with was even bigger. The B-52 Stratofortress bomber was over 159 feet long with a wingspan of 185 feet. That's over 48 meters long with a wingspan of over 56 meters. The entire crew on board both planes were killed as debris started to rain down onto the ground below. No one knew it at the time, but they had just witnessed what would soon become one of the most serious nuclear incidents during the Cold War. You see, this particular B-52 bomber had been carrying four hydrogen bombs, or H-bombs. If the first H-bomb test gave us any indication as to their devastating power, each one of those bombs had the potential to unleash the energy of about 10 million tons of TNT. And there were four of those bombs that fell out of the air when the planes collided over Spain. Fortunately, they had never been armed, so they didn't detonate. Three of the bombs fell on land, one of which had a parachute, so it landed intact. The other two didn't have parachutes, and as a result, they shattered on impact, spreading plutonium across the Spanish countryside. The final of these bombs landed in the ocean, about five miles off the shore. This was a scenario the U.S. government didn't have any plan for. To give you an idea of how crazy a political situation this was, it wasn't until about a month later, on February 16th, when the USS Hoist joined the recovery effort for the bomb. As we saw in the movie, the USS Hoist was where Carl was stationed. Oh, and as a little side note, in 1967 and 1968, the commander of the Hoist was a man named Edward Lefebvre. As far as I know, there's no relation to me, but you can probably guess my last name isn't one that comes up very often in research, so when it did this time, I couldn't help but share that little tidbit. Anyway, in the movie, there's a moment that almost seems too made for Hollywood to be true. While Carl is walking on the seafloor to try to find the bomb, a Russian sub goes by. 
Carl's airline is caught on the sub, and for a while, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s version of Carl is dragged by the sub until the airline happens to slip off. That didn't happen. In that same speech at Penn State that we learned about earlier, Carl explained a few other scenes in the film. Quote, The barracks walkout didn't happen in Bayonne, New Jersey. It happened in Florida. The officer didn't throw my radio on the floor. He pounded on a shelf and it fell off. And I wasn't dragged by any Russian submarine, but it made for good footage. End quote. But they did find the bomb. The movie doesn't really mention timelines here, but it was months after the search began that it finally came to an end. Despite these differences, Carl estimated Men of Honor was about 80% accurate. Speaking of which, the next major scene in the film is something that it does get right. That happens after the H-bomb is found. In the movie, Cuba Gooding Jr. notices something isn't right with the lines hoisting the bomb. Then it snaps, and he's just able to shove another sailor out of the way, saving his life. Meanwhile, Carl's leg is snapped nearly off. Oh, and it's worth pointing out that the timeline in the movie doesn't quite match up. You see, the accident happened on March 23rd, 1966. It wasn't until April 7th that they were able to successfully recover the final H-bomb from the B-52. Fortunately, we have Carl's own recounting of the accident to let us know how accurate that was. This comes from Carl via the U.S. Naval Institute. Quote, just as I started to leave, the boat pulled on the pipe that had the mooring line tied to it. That pipe came loose, flew across the deck, and it struck my leg below the knee. They said I was way up in the air, just turning flips. I landed about two foot inside of that freeboard. They said if I'd been two feet farther over, I'd have gone over the side. I jumped up and started to run and fell over. That's when I knew how bad my leg was. End quote. Carl continued explaining the real events behind what we saw happen next in the film. And again, I quote, Then they were going to piece my leg back on and do plastic surgery. Well, they were going to make my leg three inches shorter than the other leg. When they took the bandage off, my foot fell off. So they tried again, and it would fall off. It got gangrene and got infected. Well, I was slowly dying from that. So they transferred me up to Wiesbaden, Germany. There, the doctor said that he could fix me, but it would take three years and could have me walking on a brace. So I raised all sorts of hell in that hospital. So he said, well, do you want to be airmailed out to the States? That's the term he used. He said, do you want to be airmailed out to the States? I said, yes, sir. Airmail me out of here. That's the end of that quote, but after arriving in the United States, Carl had the surgery. As he later explained, quote, so they did a guillotine-type operation, just chopped it off, cleared up the infection. A while later, he said, we didn't go high enough. We need to cut off another inch and a half. So they cut off an inch and a half to make sure they got it and bleed it out and sewed it up. This was in July 1966. End quote. Outside of Carl's own recollections, just to give some other insights into the accident from documentation, Carl was struck by a pipe that flew across the deck and hit him just below his left knee. The men on board the hoist weren't prepared for this. 
They didn't have adequate medical personnel, and their helicopter wasn't even fueled. It took six hours for Carl to make it to the nearest hospital, where he was officially declared dead on arrival. Upon a closer look, one of the doctors heard a faint heartbeat, and that declaration was rescinded. Meanwhile, he had received 18 pints of blood from the accident. To give some context here, the average human has anywhere from 10 to 12 pints of blood in their entire body. That gives you an idea of how much Carl was bleeding. Needless to say, it was amazing that he was able to survive. As the movie comes to an end, Carl refuses to let even his amputated leg slow him down. He tries to return to active duty as a diver in the U.S. Navy. We see a scene in the courtroom where Robert De Niro's character helps Cuba Gooding Jr.'s portrayal of Carl take the 12 steps necessary inside a new 290-pound diving suit. No small task for anyone, let alone someone who lost the bottom of their leg just months before. Oh, and 290 pounds is about 131.5 kilograms. The way the film depicts this is all made up. Remember, Robert De Niro's character didn't exist, after all. However, the plot points are pretty accurate, even if they are sped up for the film. After the surgery, in July, it wasn't until months later, in November of 1966, when Carl got his prosthetic leg. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but after he got his leg, Carl snuck out of the hospital to dive. When he did, he snapped photos and documented this. After successfully managing to dive with his prosthetic leg, he used these photos and documentation when he tried to convince his superiors in the Navy to let him return to active duty. As impressive as his diving exhibition was, the Navy officers were understandably hesitant. Finally, they gave in and decided to give him a shot. Carl's rehabilitation took place at the Deep Diving School in Washington, D.C., He'd already completed diving school once, and here he had to do it again. Even with everything he'd been through, by his own admission later on, this was the most difficult thing he ever had to do in his life. But it was something he also said he probably would not have been able to do or to endure if he hadn't already endured so much. To give you an idea of how difficult this was, any time Carl would run, something that was required of all trainees at the school. He would start to bleed into his prosthetic leg. Fearing this would make his doctors deny his re-entry into active service, Carl hid this from everyone and instead treated himself with things like iodine and peroxide. And that's just an example of the physical side. Before, he was discriminated against because of his race, and now he received eerily similar treatment because of his disability. Granted, not as hateful and horrible, but more along the lines of officers and doctors trying to push him into a medical discharge. It didn't happen like what we saw in the movie, but Carl even had to prove himself by walking 12 steps in the 290 or 131 kilogram Mark V deep sea diving suit. Amazingly, just like what we saw in the movie, he did it. But that was just one part in the arduous journey back into active service. After months of intense training in March of 1967, Carl's doctors approved his next step, 
Second Class Diving School in Norfolk, Virginia. At the very end of the movie, the text on screen says that Carl became the first amputee in the U.S. Navy to return to active duty in 1968. That is true. Two years after the accident, in April of 1968, Carl Brashear once again made history when he was restored to full active duty and became the U.S. Navy's first amputee diver. According to that final text on the screen at the end of the movie, it was two years after being restored to active duty that Carl made history yet again when he earned the rank of Master Diver. And again, that's true. Well, sort of. This is something that some have actually disputed because there are some qualifiers here. There were other African-American divers in the U.S. Navy before Carl Brashear. For example, John Henry or Dick Turpin was a diver in the early 1900s. However, technically, Dick retired from the U.S. Navy and came back as a contractor when he qualified to be a master diver. So while most believe Dick Turpin was the first African-American master diver, because he wasn't active duty in the Navy anymore, that would mean it would still be decades until an active duty deep-sea diver for the U.S. Navy earned that distinction. That's why most official U.S. Navy historical documents refer to Carl Brashear as the first African-American deep-sea diver in the U.S. Navy's history. But he was also the first amputee diver, as well as the first African-American master diver while on active duty for the U.S. Navy. Nine years later, on April 1st, 1979, Master Chief Petty Officer and Master Diver Carl Brashear retired from the U.S. Navy. On top of those other historic moments, he'd earned the highest enlisted rate as Master Chief and the highest qualification for a diver as a Master Diver. But he wasn't quite done. After retiring from the Navy, he served 14 years at the Naval Station in Norfolk as a civilian employee. Finally, he retired from this role in 1993. Thirteen years later, on July 25, 2006, and at the age of 75, Carl Brashear passed away at Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, the very same hospital where he recovered from his leg injury decades before. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. To learn more about the amazing life of Carl Bashir, I'd recommend starting with the book that the movie is based on, also called Men of Honor by David Robbins. Unfortunately, Carl never wrote an autobiography, but there is a very rare book out there called The Reminiscences of Master Chief Boatswain's Mate Carl M. Bashir. I wish I could say I've read it, but it's pretty rare and as a result, very pricey. If you or anyone you know has a copy, I'd love to hear how it is. Before we get to the two truths and a lie game, let's share another five-star review from iTunes. This one comes from Dusser over in Sweden, who says, Slogs monster verkligen mot grekarna? Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here. Sorry, Dusser, but as you can probably guess from my butchering just that little bit right there, I don't speak Swedish. So I had to copy this into trusty Google Translate in order to tell what it said. Here is the translation, quote, Monsters really fought against the Greeks? 
good overview on the true story behind the movie narrated in a committed way, end quote. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming that the initial question is referring to the episode where we learn the true story behind the movie 300. And I'm assuming that the monsters you're referring to are the immortals. I don't know if I'd really call them monsters because they're just humans, but their name, which came from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, was given because they were a very elite military force. More specifically, they were heavy infantry kept at a constant number of 10,000, no more, no less, which means whenever their numbers fell, more would be there to replace them. Lots of historians assume that's where the term immortals came from, that replacement to get back to the 10,000 number. Anyway, thank you so much for the review, Dusser. And thank you, dear listener, for taking the time to find and listen to the Based on a True Story podcast. If you want to leave a five-star review for me to read in the future, hop over to iTunes. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Carl Bashir was the first African-American diver in the U.S. Navy. Number two, Carl Bashir was the first African-American deep sea diver in the U.S. Navy to earn master diver while on active duty. Number three, Carl Bashir was the first amputee diver in the U.S. Navy. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. As we learned, while Carl Bashir did have the distinction of becoming the first African-American deep sea diver in the U.S. Navy to become a master diver while on active duty, he wasn't actually the first African-American diver in the U.S. Navy. That distinction, many believe, go to Dick Turpin. Thanks again for listening. The next time you're on Facebook, do me a favor and search for the Based on a True Story podcast Facebook group. Once you find it, hit join group, I'll approve your membership, and then start a new post with what you thought about Carl's story. You can also find the show on Instagram, which is at Based on a True Story Podcast, or you can find me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or maybe you're not a fan of social media. You can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.